And so what I want to do is I want to take a moment to look, to look at two of the characters of Christmas, of the Christmas narrative. Um, and as we look at the characters of this Christmas narrative and, we, and we, we, we read about their experience and we ponder the way in which these women were, 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 were so full of faith. Um, really, inter- interestingly enough, in the Christmas story, the women shine brightly as models of faith, whereas the men uh, shine as models of skepticism that get rebuked. And, uh, and we'll see a little bit of that here this morning. Uh, but these two women highlight not just joy, but joy in the midst of years of disappointment, judgment, and shame, which that's the, con- that, that's the interesting paradox about joy. Joy walks with us in the midst of our grief and shame and disappointment. It doesn't wait for us to get to the other side before it joins us in the journey. Joy walks with us during those times of difficulty. And we're gonna look at that in the the lives of these two characters. And then after we're gonna close with just a couple of thoughts on how we might uh, respond to God's faithfulness by entering into the joy that he uh, extends to us as well. So let's just jump right into this great familiar passage of, it's not exactly the Christmas story, it's kind of more the pre-Christmas story, but without it, you don't get the Christmas story. So uh, Luke chapter one, let's drop down and let's look at verses five through seven. We're gonna walk through this text this morning. In the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest of Abijah's division named Zechariah. His wife was from the daughters of Aaron and her name was Elizabeth. Both were righteous in God's sight, living without blame according to all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. But they had no children because Elizabeth could not conceive. And both of them were uh, well along in years. Now we see that these are righteous people. And what happens is in the story, as, as we're going to see, is that... Is that um, Zachariah is chosen to burn incense in the Holy of Holies, which happened uh, once a year. And honestly, a priest would be lucky if they got the opportunity to serve in this capacity even once in their entire lifetime. And he goes in and he's going to send incense. And, and I'm going to go ahead and just kind of walk through the narrative and then, then we'll read it quickly. But what, what, as you're probably familiar with the story, as he's in there, uh, and the angel Gabriel appears for him and he, and he brings him a message. And he tells Zechariah that Elizabeth is going to have a son. And, of course, Zechariah is shocked by this. And you can tell from his response that God is answering a prayer that Zechariah probably stopped praying years ago. So I'm sure when they were young, they very earnestly prayed for children. In fact, when I think about Elizabeth, I think about the story of Samuel and you remember when Samuel's mother is praying for a son and the priest sees her and she's so intently at the altar praying and the priest assumes she's drunk? You remember that? Uh, I've only had that happen a couple of times in the context of ministry and unfortunately they were in fact drunk. But in this case, this was not the case. And she wasn't drunk. She says, no, it's just that she was praying with such urgency. And she's told that day that God heard her prayer. And she, and she, she responds by making the declaration to, you know, to, 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 um, to um, give her son up to the Lord and the Lord's service. Elizabeth, however, uh, 
that is not the answer she received. Her answer was wait, which after decades seemed like a no. And you can tell that because Zachariah is not like, amen, hallelujah, brother, I've been praying and holding on in faith. I knew this day would come. No, he's like, what are you talking about? This can't be because we're too old to have a child. Now, I think that this is an interesting insight, though, in the scripture. Here we have a man that is just faithfully and quietly going on with his responsibilities. And any hope that he put into a future that he would have fashioned and would have expected God to create for him has long passed. He's let it go. And yet, just because the disappointment came into his life did not hinder the fact that the Bible testifies that both of these individuals were righteous people. And what we see about Zechariah is that he's faithfully engaging in ministry before the Lord. And it struck me as I was reading this again this week, miracles often happen in the context of faithfulness. I, I know that we like to think that the way miracles happen is we ask, we pray, boom, something big happens, and then, you know, the preacher lets you stand up and share testimony in church next week, or in our case, we would send you to David, and he would make a video, and we would put music to it, and you could share your excitement with us, and certainly, we would do that. Certainly, I would long to do that. I know that that happens. I have seen that happens, and in some ways, I've been recipients of that, but the problem with highlighting those spectacular miracles is we don't often enough highlight the significant miracles. And the truth is, significant happens in a much quieter place and almost goes undetected if your eye isn't trained to watch for it. Spectacular is easy to see. That's a miracle that knocks you upside of the head like a two-by-four. But oftentimes, we don't see that miracles are happening in a quiet context often when we've forgotten about him, as in the case of Zachariah and Elizabeth. You can tell by his response, we'll read it in a few minutes, he's not expecting an answer to this prayer. And yet, in the context of routine faithfulness is when God interrupts and brings this miracle and this blessing. And so, Zachariah hears it, and, um, you know, he's told that John will be set apart for, uh, from the womb, that he is going to be the fulfillment of the last prophetic encouragement to Old Testament, Old Covenant Israel, and he is going to come to prepare a way, prepare the way for the Lord. And um, but uh, because he can't, um, because he has such disbelief, the angel says, "Well, because of that disbelief, you're going to be silent um, until John is born." Which means Zechariah then had, I mean. Everyone was worried because he took so long. Then when he comes out, they're waiting for an explanation. The guy can't give an explanation. Maybe he pantomimed the whole thing for them that he saw this angel and now he can't talk. I don't know. But it was communicated and so he's not able to speak. And so um, he leaves and he goes back to Elizabeth and he tells them, he tells Elizabeth or he communicates to Elizabeth. He obviously didn't tell her. He communicates to Elizabeth what the angel told him. And she goes into a seclusion for five months. But here's what's interesting. When Gabriel delivers the promise to Zechariah, he is able to actually look at this heavenly being. I mean, I don't know what angels look like. I mean, I've seen them in pictures and so forth. And, you know, depending on the time and place and the literature you're looking at, they're either like cute, chubby little cherubs 
or they're like these buff kind of Arnold Schwarzenegger type of swords. I'm pretty sure the first version is the accurate one. It's the one I identify with the most. Um, but, but, but what I do know, it's very clear that Zechariah is aware that a spiritual being, the messenger of God, is standing before him. You would think <coughs> that that would suffice to overcome any doubts that he has. However, in the story, it doesn't. He questions it, and so he's, he's silent for until John is born. But let's look at Elizabeth's response. She doesn't have a heavenly messenger. She has her husband, who is ancient and old, who can't even talk, so he must be writing this down, because later in the text it says he communicates by writing on tablets or paper. He must have written this down, and yet, even though she didn't have all the props to her faith that he had, this is her response. We find it in verse 25. The Lord has done this for me. He has looked with favor in these days to take away my disgrace among the people. Now, that phrase is very important because it reveals to us that in a culture of honor and shame, in a culture of honor and shame where they were making speculations about the reasons why someone might be blessed with children or the reasons why someone wouldn't be blessed with children, and this is a religious culture, and you all know what we tend to go to in our minds, what we travel to. If we're religious people, even if our theology, we would answer it differently in our heart, we tend to think blessings come because God is happy with us for being good and obedient. And uh, curses or negative things happen because God's upset with us about something that we've done. You see this struggle and this tension all throughout the scriptures themselves. This is what I love about our faith is even our sacred text critiques this uh, perspective. Look at the book of Job. All of Job's counselors, that's essentially what they said. You've got calamity on you. There must be something you've done that you need to repent of. And by the end of the book, God says, I'm ready to kill your friends who were telling you all those things. And if you'll remember, Job intervenes and prays and, and says that God has mercy on them. But the point is, it's possible that the book of Job might be the oldest book in our Bible um, that, that we have written records of. And so all the way from those ancient times, religious people have wrestled with this perspective. And so, and so, what Elizabeth, so Elizabeth would have lived under not just the pain of not having a child, but she would have also lived under the assumptions of her community, which would have thought shamefully about her because she was barren. And now she recognized not only has God fulfilled his promise to bring her a child, but in doing so, he has removed her disgrace. After having borne and accepted the lifelong stigma of barrenness, Elizabeth's disgrace has been removed and she celebrates the kindness of God. One of the key mindsets for sustaining our joy is learning to see, acknowledge, and celebrate the favor of God in the events of our lives. Look, I can't pull back the veil. I can't see everything that's going on in, in, uh, in, in, in realms that I'm not participating in at this point in my journey. But what I am saying is this. So oftentimes when blessings come my way, I quickly think about how lucky I am. 
And what I've tried to do as I've gotten older is to pause and say, no, this kindness is an expression of the kindness of God. This is a reminder that God's favor rests upon me. This is what Elizabeth did. And so, so then, uh, in, in the meantime, Gabriel is busy in Luke chapter 1 because then he goes to Mary. And Mary is told that she has also found favor, which is an interesting thing that these, these, these women celebrate, the recognition that the activity of God in their life is an expression of his favor in their lives. And so Mary is told that she's found favor with God, and she's also going to give birth to a son. Now, if you thought Elizabeth's situation was difficult, because she was old, Mary's a virgin. She's never been with a man. And yet she's told she's going to conceive and have a son. And so she asked, now here's what's interesting. There is, a different, there is a difference between cynical doubt and a doubt that is seeking understanding in the context of faith. With Zechariah, there's this cynicism and this disbelief that results in this consequence of silence, which is an interesting thing to speculate about. One almost wonders if he could have talked, if he would have ripped that joy right out of Elizabeth's heart, because that's what we cynics tend to do to the faithful around us. But nonetheless, he couldn't talk. So, so, um, so for Mary, she is not doubting, but she is curious. How could this possibly happen? We drop down to verse 35. The angel replied to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And consider your relative Elizabeth. Even she has conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month for her who was called childless. For nothing will be impossible with God. Mary's reply is not doubt. This can't happen. I love this reply in verse 38. See, I am the Lord's servant said Mary, may it happen to me as you have said. And the angel left her. I love that prayer of Mary. I've, I've adapted it in many times of, of darkness and questioning in my own life. And I've returned to this little narrative and the response of Mary. And, and I had just developed a prayer. May it happen to me as you will. May it happen to me as you will. Now, that rolls off the tongue quickly, but typically when I'm at the point where I have to pray that prayer, there's this beautiful experience of the peace that comes with yielding and surrendering, even though I don't know what the context, I mean, what the, what the results are going to be, what the consequences are going to be, what the, what, the, what the circumstance is going to be. And yet, I can still trust and say, may it be to me, your servant, according to your will. Now, um, I believe in the power of prayer. If someone's super hungry and praying that I'm not able to carry this through to the end of the service, please stop. Uh, but at any moment now, I feel like I'm going to start speaking with my whispering voice. So, so just kind of pray for me and bear with me here. I do apologize for that. Is this annoying, y'all? Nah, it's kind of edgy, isn't it? I may sing a song and sound like Spreesting here in just a few moments. I kind of like, like this raspy voice. I can tell my wife's liking it. Um, so uh, <laughs> 
Ooh, where are we? Okay, there we go. So then it says the angel left her. So, <coughs> so after this news, Mary runs to the hill country to see Elizabeth. And this is where we see this tangible eruption of joy in this story. In the midst of discouragement, disgrace, shame, and disappointment, joy bursts through these two expectant mothers. Verse 41, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped inside her and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women and your child will be blessed. How could this happen to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For you see, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped for joy inside me. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill what he has spoken to her. And I love the way this highlights this because often it's not just the encounter from God, but it's whether or not we will respond in trust that makes the difference in the experience that we're having. And what Elizabeth celebrates is that Mary's response was one of belief, faith, trust. Mary is blessed because she was willing to trust that God would fulfill his promise. And then Mary celebrates God's faithfulness in a song known as the Magnificat. Now, I love the Magnificat, and I, use, I like to read the whole thing during this season, but I recognize that we didn't really have time to go into all of it. I would encourage you to go back to Luke chapter one, read the Magnificat. It's a beautiful response of Mary. We're just gonna read for a few verses. But I also, excuse me, didn't read it because I didn't want to disappoint you all with a spoiler alert. Mary did know, and I know we're gonna sing whether or not she did this season, but she knew, and the Magnificat proves that she knew. Okay, um, thank you. It took you a little while, but you finally got there. I'm proud of you, proud of you. Nice effort. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. Little evangelical humor. Um, verse 46, and Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior, because <coughs> he has looked with favor on the humble condition of his servant. And see, you see the theme. We have it here again. I'm in a humble condition, and yet the Lord looked with favor on me. Do you see, do you see even from the very beginning, we're hinting at a kingdom that doesn't work like the rest of the world. Because in our world, the disgraced and the humbled don't get the honor and the favor. But in the kingdom of God, things get turned completely upside down. And God doesn't simply acquiesce to the humbled in disgrace. It seems that he prefers them. That that is directly where his heart is drawn, is to move forward and bless the humble and disgraced. And so, um, <coughs> excuse me, verse 48, let's read it again. Because he has looked with favor on the humble condition of his servant, surely from now on, all generations will call me blessed. When you think of joy, don't simply think of happiness in circumstance. Remember that joy is rooted in the, is rooted in the reality that we have a God that looks beyond our shame and disgrace and, 
acquiesces to look upon us with favor and to bless us, even though others and maybe ourselves would say, I don't deserve this. But that's the God that we serve. This is where joy is rooted. Joy is rooted in the hopeful expectation and experience that God is always faithful to his promises, even if it's not on our timetable or not according to our agenda. So as we come out of reflecting on these two ladies, I want us to end with just reflecting on two thoughts about joy. Number one, we're told that joy strengthens our soul. And secondly, joy is a choice. Joy strengthens our soul and joy is a choice. Let's look at the first one. Joy strengthens the soul. And to do that, I want to go back to a verse that I think we're all familiar with the very last bit of this verse. And I'm going to start it. And if you know how it ends, you just call it back to me. We're going to call and response this morning. For the joy of the Lord, that's right. For the joy of the Lord is my strength. I even remember singing songs about it in children's church. For the joy of the Lord is my strength. I'm not going to sing it for you. I'm by training, um, a rapper, not a singer. Um, so, but, uh, but we used to sing these songs with the joy of the Lord is my strength. Well, that verse is found in Nehemiah and the context <laughs> of that verse is quite fascinating to me. Just a quick brief background. Nehemiah was an Old Testament leader who got permission from King Artaxerxes to return from exile in Babylon and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. So he's, he's, he, and so he's leading this charge to rebuild the walls. Then in chapter eight of the book of Nehemiah, he brings all the people together and they bring out the law of Moses and they read it. Nehemiah is then calling people to remember and return to their relationship with God. And look at what he says to them, Nehemiah 8.10. I don't know why we don't put the whole verse on our coffee cups and t-shirts and bumper stickers. Then he said to them, Go and eat what is rich. God bless you. You are dismissed. I hope the Lord spoke to you today. You know, I was really glad to find this verse because I've always felt bad at pastoral conference when people ask me what my life verse is. And I don't ever have one. I have one now. My life verse is Nehemiah 8.10. Go and eat what is rich. Drink what is sweet. And send portions to those who have nothing prepared. Since today is holy. Look at this. I mean, this is amazing. Whenever I would hear the word holy, I would think of somberness and austerity. But what Nehemiah says, if it's holy, then you throw a party. Since today is holy to our Lord, do not grieve because the joy the Lord is your strength. Now look at this. When I have heard meditations on this verse, the joy of the Lord is your strength, I always came away with the assumption that this is an individual private experience. You know, I live a righteous life. I, I go to my prayer closet and there I encounter the presence of the Lord and he strengthens my spirit and he returns to my joy. And so I can leave there saying the joy of the Lord is my strength. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that that doesn't happen. I think it does. 
But the context of that verse is not individual and it's not private. It's communal. The way that God gives us the joy that becomes our strength is in the company of others with whom we are celebrating. This is what it says. Essentially, the way we experience the joy, according to Nehemiah 8, is to eat, drink, and share. The other thing I love about this verse is that the three kind of flagship values of Christ's community, communion, community, and compassion, they're all here too. Because we get together and we eat and drink, there's community. And then we share with those who have nothing prepared, there's compassion. And then we experience the joy of the Lord is our strength. There we have our communion. All right here in this verse. Joy can be experienced certainly in the place of prayer, but most often the joy of the Lord is experienced through feasting with friends and family. That's why ultimately the work of the church is incomplete until it provides the infrastructure to connect people around tables. This is why we value the ongoing cultivation and growth of our community groups because the intention there is not simply to have a program that's expected of all churches, all contemporary churches to have a small group program. No, it's I mean, that desire is there, but it's larger than that. It's a theological value that we recognize. As disciples of Jesus, one of the ways we are transformed is by what transpires when we sit around tables with others. Whenever we feast and drink and share around a table. And if you think about it, the majority of life and certainly the majority of the memories that we hold most dear is spent around tables with people we love. The majority of ministry takes place around tables of feasting and laughter. And you know what? You you don't just have to be with the right people. You don't have to have a list Do they believe this? Do they believe that? Where do they lean politically? Where are they religiously? No, if you let the Holy Spirit just to respond to to the people that seem to see what you see, go there and fellowship and find the Lord's joy. Find the people who recognize the song in your heart. Find the people who recognize the song in your heart. Now, I'm not saying fellowship only with those people, but you need those safe places. Sometimes we fellowship not to find a safe place, but to be a safe place, and that is appropriate. But especially if you're called and you're engaged in the work of creating safe places, you have to find yours as well. And that is with the people who recognize the song in your heart. You don't have to convince them. You don't have to debate. You don't have to defend. You don't have to answer judgment. You can just fully be who you are. Man, my friends, it's such a precious gift. I spoke to a friend of mine that I don't think I've spoke to in at least five years. And uh, we finally scheduled a phone call uh, last week, and we spoke, 
And even five years ago when we spoke, it was a 10-minute phone call that had to do with logistics. I haven't sat down with this person and had a heartfelt conversation for about 20 years. And yet in that phone call, immediately it felt like I had left dinner at his house last night. It just immediately, there was no explanation of, of who I am and what I'm saying. It was just fully being who I am. And he felt the same way. Find those people. Find the people that hear the song in your heart and take time to schedule dinners with them. Sit and feast and laugh and weep and be fully present to one another because when you are, you're bringing Christ to one another face-to-face in the flesh. One of the primary means of experiencing God's presence and his joy is through the fellowship of the table. And finally, as we close, I want to remind us all that joy is a choice. Misery is also the choice. That is not the Six Flags man. I confirmed it this morning, but that's the first thing I thought of when I saw that picture um, that um, somebody put together for me. Um, But joy is a choice. But the truth is misery is also a choice. Now, again, I don't want to be misunderstood. I'm not saying if you feel bad, it's just your fault. You should have chose differently. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is the complexity of joy means that there's a paradox and a mystery where sometimes I have to enter into the joy of the Lord even when my heart is broken or even when my hope has been deferred. The circumstances that create opportunities for joy or misery are not always a choice, but we have been endowed with the power to choose our response. Remember, Elizabeth celebrates that Mary is blessed because she chose to believe that the Lord would fulfill his promise. That means that we can choose joy in the paradox of heartache. Choosing joy is not a betrayal of loss or a denial of grief. And unfortunately, as I look upon this group of people, I know there are some of you presented with both of those things simultaneously during this season. Around that table, there'll be places where people sit and they're not sitting there anymore. Some of you are encountering this season for the very first time without someone significant in your life. It is not a betrayal of grief to find joy and it is not a betrayal of joy to express your grief. These things can happen simultaneously. The paradox of the life of faith is that joy and grief are often traveling companions. Christmas is here, my friends. It's a remembrance and the celebration of the reason and the grounding of our joy. Christmas reminds us that God came near to reveal his favor toward humanity. Please allow me the indulgence of saying that one more time. Christmas reminds us that God came near to reveal his favor toward humanity. And this is important. If you go back and read the text, it is not coming to reveal his favor toward Christians. It's a good thing because no Christians existed at this time. Only faithful Israelites, only faithful Jews. No, it is a revelation of his favor toward humankind. 
not just a particular ethnic or religious group or socioeconomic class, that he looks with favor upon humankind. The incarnation reminds us that Jesus came to model that we are one with the Father. And Paul will go on to reinforce this revelation and remind us that our hope of glory is what? Christ in us. The story begins with God with us and it ends with Christ in us. My friends, if you feel the awkward pressure that religion has told you you need to communicate God's disfavor with those who aren't following him, allow me to release you right now this morning. Why do we think we're called to share a darker message than God shares? Now, what we celebrate is the light has come. God has looked with favor on humankind. So he sent his son into the world as the exact representation of himself so that he could display his love for us all. Would the worship team please come forward? So as we close, I want to encourage you to respond with three very specific actions. Number one, feast with family and friends. I get to do that this afternoon. We'll go to my brother's house where we'll eat Think taco soup? Okay. Taco soup. For me, that's the feasting we'll do this afternoon. But take a moment to feast with family and friends. And here's the trick. Be present. Don't go absent because you assume, number one, I just have to endure this. So I'm sure that's what my brother's struggling with about this afternoon. Don't go into it with just having to endure the presence of the people there. And don't go in it disconnected. Go in it recognizing it for what it is, is an extension of God's mercy, kindness, and favor towards you. Be present and enter into the joy of feasting with family and friends. Take time to acknowledge and celebrate God's favor every day. Make an index card, set it by your bedside, and it simply says, where was God's favor today? And maybe that's the first time all day long you think about it, but take a second and enter into it. Enter into it. I love this exercise because the majority of the time, I didn't recognize his favor when it came. I only recognized it upon reflection. But the more I do that, the more I grow in my skill of recognizing God's favor when it's presented to me. And finally, my friends, refuse cynicism and bitterness by choosing faith and joy. Even if your joyful prayer is prayed with tears, enter into the experience of both. Let God walk with you through your grief, but don't let your grief rob you of the presence of joy. Would you all stand?